The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and one magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 61 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wishing I had all access to the DC and Marvel executives so I could pitch the return of the Amalgam universe, I'm Adam. And seriously considering moving to Bloodhaven so I can pal around with Nightwing and escape the madness of this heat wave on Long Island, I'm Michael. Speaking of which, Michael, it is good to have you back. It feels like it has been quite a while since we've had you on a full episode. You've kind of popped in here and there. Life has been happening for you. Let's just put it that way. So can you just reassure the listeners out there that you've not been avoiding them on purpose, but instead you've just been trying to survive the gauntlet of the things you've been experiencing over the last few months? Well, I promise you I'm not going anywhere I'm currently like a man with no country. My house is under construction. I'm living at my in-laws. I am periodically recording podcasts at my parents' house, you know, about with COVID in our house. And it's been pandemonium and craziness. And I'm kind of at this weird stage where I've got a very obscure setup for how I'm doing these podcasts now. And it's like my, my mobile assault vehicle here I got going on. <laughs> and uh, how many comics have you found time to read as you've been on the run? Well, actually, when I had COVID, I read a lot of the Sean Murphy Batman White Knight saga, which is fantastic, by the way. Um, so I read about, I'd say, 10 or 12 comics in a week, which I was very excited about because I hadn't done that in a very long time. Yeah, that's awesome. And then life got back to normal and I'm commuting back to the city and I'm like, I have no time for anything anymore. Yeah, well, you know, you got to start listening to all those audio drama comics in podcast form that they would put out. And there's like Wolverine and stuff like that. You know, I tried listening to the Guardians of the Galaxy one where it was like Old Man, Star-Lord, and, and Rocket. It was okay. It, it, it felt overly produced, and I was sort of like, eh, I don't know, whatever. But, but I, I am interested. Yeah, I tried listening to the Marvels one that was kind of like a sequel to Marvels, and there's just a little too much going on with that for me as well it just didn't quite connect the same way as the comic but there was a fun batman series that's part of hbo max and that was actually pretty hilarious i i heard that's really good well, you got a couple of our comic book and audio comic recommends there, but the other thing that we recommend is staying in touch with your local comics journalist. That's right, so it's time that we check out what the folks in 1996 were writing into old Jim McLaughlin and Magic Words. It's time to check out Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. <laughs> So I'm going to tell you ahead of time, running over here, I forgot my eyeglasses. So we're going to see how this is going to go. But <laughs> Good luck. Um, a, a reader named Ryan Scott Otney from New Boston, Ohio, calls out Wizard for complaining too much. And Ryan says, 
I have been an active reader of your magazine for years. It is definitely the best there is, but man, you guys bitch a lot. In the past few years, you've whined about Generation X TV movie, Superman Doomsday, Hunter Prey, Batman movies, and don't even get me started on the Spider Clone. I was just wondering, do you guys like anything they sound like me though because i don't like anything either. i'm glad you said it not me <laughs> uh, i personally liked all the items i listed above but that's just my opinion i realize that you are entitled to your opinion but what the heck do you guys like anyway what i find funny is he went as far as to say you bitch about everything but then he went what the heck <laughs> So the response says, personally, I liked Hunter Prey. Okay, you're right. We do bitch a lot. But we also praise. In just the past few months, we've devoted big time space to singing the praises of the Legion of Superheroes, Daredevil, Kingdom Come, Strangers in Paradise, Scud, and Green Lantern. So it ain't like we do nothing but grind axes. Basically... We're a semi-large and very disparate staff, so our likes and dislikes are varied. Tip for the in-depth wizard reader, look at the little things. Look for the line or two in picks, or look at the staff picks section in the price guide. That's the stuff we really like. Yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. A little tip to be an in-depth reader, right? You look where the actual opinions are coming from, because that's the truth, right? Like, they are not a review magazine. That's not really where their bread and butter is. They're more of a hype and promotions magazine. But they sprinkle in some opinions here and there. But I will say, everything that, they, that he listed they dumped on, Generation X, Superman Doomsday, Hunter Prey, the Batman movies, I can't fault them for that. And especially the Spider-Clone. <laughs> <laughs> e2, Michael. But our next letter here is actually something really special because this is the number one letter from Magic Words that I remember reading back in the day that just has always stuck with me. Of course you do. Of course you do. Only you. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> It's a very heavy metal question for Jim McLaughlin here. He says, To Jimmy Boy, Black Sabbath wrote a really cool song back in the early 70s entitled Iron Man. This song rules, and I was wondering if the Iron Man comic character was the basis of this song, or if Ozzy Osbourne was just drunk again. Robert Hart, Staten Island, New York. And so Jim's response is, eh, probably both. Marvel's Iron Man was indeed the inspiration for the song, and Ozzy was probably tanked or something when he wrote it. However, it should be noted that Mr. Osbourne has recently switched to a healthier lifestyle and no longer imbibes the demon rum or any other distilled spirits. Okay, so this is something where around this time I was just being introduced to the world of hard rock and heavy metal by guys who would be in my future heavy metal band Natural Fear. So it was a situation where I was just like, huh, I wonder if that's true. Could it be true? It is not. In fact, Jim McLaughlin was wrong about this one, insisting that Iron Man was the inspiration because, according to Geezer Butler, the drummer Black Sabbath, who wrote the song lyrics in an interview with LouderRock.com in 2019, quote, My parents never let me read any American comics growing up. I knew about Batman and Superman, and that's about it. For me, it was all about Beano and Dandy. So whatever someone said to me over the years, Oh, did you write this about a superhero? I'd just say, Sorry. Never heard of him. <laughs> so there you go. There is the truth. Nothing to do with Tony Stark, but I'm sure if it had, it would have made headlines back when the original 
original Iron Man movie came out. So it's time that we get into some... I threw a little woo in there for fun. I don't know. So our top story tonight, or whenever you're listening to this day, night, morning, in the car, wherever it is, Marvel DC to meet again with all access. According to DC versus Marvel writer Ron Mars, who you guys are going to hear on a special podcast episode with, with Adam and Steven, all access will allow us to get further in-depth with specific characters, meetings, and fights. If there was one criticism of the first series, it's that the fights were too short. All Access will focus on the Axel Asher, a.k.a. Access, who was created for the initial crossover of universes and is jointly owned by both Marvel and DC. Explains Mars, jokingly, as a DC Comics employee, we own the ACK, and Marvel owns the S. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny. <laughs> the miniseries promises Superman and Spider-Man teaming up to tackle Venom, some Batman Wolverine action, and some full-fledged JLA X-Men stuff. When Wizard asked All Access associate editor... Chris Duffy, if the four-issue miniseries will usher in the return of the amalgam cast of characters, he offers this cryptic response. Well, we didn't see the dead body of the amalgam universe, so... <laughs> nice way to build the suspense there. Of course, we know that amalgam does get another go-around. It was very popular not only with the fans, but also with the comics pros who were writing it. They just had the best time doing it, at least according to Ron Mars, who, as Michael told you, we spoke with on The Wizard Files. A very fun conversation there. We got all into DC versus Marvel, into All Access, all of those things. Very fun guy, some great stories. Stories. But speaking of all access, this is one of my favorite events in addition to Amalgam of this era of comic books. And so I will be covering that four-issue miniseries on the next mini-episode. So that is another thing to check out if you've not ever heard of all access even. Kind of the follow-up to DC vs. Marvel. It's a ton of fun. But our next story here, Wizard announces the winner of the Rune Create a Villain contest from way back in issue 52. So it was taking a while to make that selection. Carrie Gretchel of East Lyme, Connecticut is the winner. He created a character named Achar, possibly related to Achoo from Robin Hood Men in Tights if you're a Mel Brooks fan. Son of a sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd get that one. So the character is described by Malibu Comics editor Mark Panicia as, quote, Little Abner Gone Evil. Again, very timely reference there, Mr. Panicia. But basically, if you look at the character, he's half generic white guy, maybe Tarzan looking, half spiky red demon, just split right down the middle. Now, the main prize of the contest was having the winning character face off against Rune in a three-issue backup story is kind of a flipbook format published by Malibu, now Marvel. And I have actually picked up these issues for the archives. They boldly stayed on the cover featuring the winner of the Wizard Create a Villain contest. It's got the Wizard logo and everything. So, you know, we had to have it, Michael. It says Wizard on the cover. Oh my goodness. How big is that file cabinet now? Oh my God. <laughs> Ever expanding. But you might be wondering, Michael, how is the debut story of Achar? And, uh, well, you know, it's a late era Marvel-owned Malibu. So, Try your own conclusions. Dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Legendary Superman comic book artist 
Kurt Swan, is reported to have passed away on June 16, 1996, after starting at DC Comics in 1945, and then becoming the main artist drawing Superman for 30 years. That was the longest streak for any artist on a Superman book. John Burns says of Swan, his pencils were very soft and very clear and very clean. I think that was the strongest thing about Kurt's work. It was believable. He drew a Superman you could legitimately expect to see walking down the street. Mike Carlin says of Swan, the man, he was one of the greats, not just in his art, but in his dealings with people. I always felt honored not just to work with him, but to know him. Yeah, it's wild to think about just this era of Wizard Magazine, this first five years, how many seminal comic book creators, the people who were there at the beginning that defined these characters. You know, we lost your Schuster and Siegel. You know, those were reported in Wizard. We now lost Kurt Swan. These people definitely associated with Superman heavily, but also, you know, Jack Kirby. I mean, so many. It's just a wild thing that, you know, 60 years for when these characters were really being created now you know they were passing away that's rough and to reflect 30 years later or so or give or take we just lost you know george perez neil adams like juggernauts and like danny o'neill a year or so ago you know like all these like dynamos in comics but speaking of the future of the man of steel it's announced that zot comics creator and writer of understanding comics scott mcleod will be the writer of the upcoming superman adventures book based on the new animated series coming to the wb or should i properly say the wb <laughs> was it was this the era of the frog oh yeah michigan j frog is the character's name and he was front and center in all of their promos when that network was launching so much so that in high school we had a talent show that was themed around like you know just like classics of film history and we played promos from the wb network on a giant screen in between the different acts hello my baby hello my honey hello my ragtime gal <laughs> Getting back to this story here, Wizard says, quote, McLeod, always a champion of self-publishing, said he took on the job for both personal and professional reasons. So I think he was kind of worried about being accused of selling out, but this was his justification. I chose to take this offer in part because it gave me a source of income while I work on my massive graphic novel project for a year or so, he said. I figure I could write a monthly title and still work on the novel. In addition, if I'm going to work for one of the majors, what better place to start than Superman? Especially Superman where I can essentially work from the ground up without having to worry about decades of continuity. So he saves some face there. Well, it's funny. It's it's like a lot of actors, like Gary Oldman is famous for saying this. is like, I do these big budget movies so that I can afford to do the low budget indies that I really want to do. And it's the same kind of thing. It's like, like a lot of these companies, they want to work for the big guys so they can get a good payday and then they can work on a smaller side project for themselves, which I totally respect. Gotta do what you gotta do. So, okay. Where was I? Okay. This issue features the first look at the new Electra series from Marvel featuring art by Mike, uh, Dadio? Dio Daddy, baby! Come on! Oh, <laughs> it's the right. Dio Dotto. Yes. <laughs> okay. Written by Peter Milligan. Editor Bobby Chase declares, this is the one big monthly launch that Marvel is doing in 1996. Electra is the big monthly launch? <laughs> right? I mean, it's crazy, but it's a new bad girl book and bad oh, girls were selling. Yeah, put it all on red. <laughs> 
Here we go. <laughs> nice. Remember this is after Marvel has just majorly downsized their line of books and staff in 1995. Milligan adds, the series will pick up from the recent issues of Wolverine. Then, as it develops during the first year, she will come up against some outlandish and dangerous characters. Translation? Uh, I'll figure yeah. it out later. We're going to create some throwaway <laughs> villains for you guys. It's going to be fantastic. Yes, quite vague. Intentionally so. Honestly, I want to hear from any of you out there that were excited about this Electra series when it dropped, if it was a big deal for you, because it seems like a lot of diehard Electra fans, especially Frank Miller, right? They're just like, no, this is not Electra. This is not what we want. But if it was something that was a big deal for you, let us know on social media. I wonder if this run is what they loosely based the you know oh the jennifer garner movie on yeah the only superhero movie my wife has seen but i have not <laughs> a film that surely would have been better if they could have teamed her up with ben affleck as daredevil again but speaking of which we started with crossover news and we're closing out on some crossover news some super team ups dc announces a catwoman vampirella crossover one shot to be drawn by the one and only man for the job jim ballant and written by chuck dixon according to editor kevin dooley quote this won't be your run-of-the-mill no-story TNA book. So you just gotta lay that down right away. It's legit! Yeah, that's like the slug line for it. Here you go, guys. <laughs> But speaking of Jim Ballant, he actually has an artistic tutorial feature in this issue titled, meh, problematically, quote, how to construct a woman. <laughs> but it, it does fit a theme. It's meant to be kind of a Frankenstein deal because it looks as though it was drawn on parchment paper coming from the mind of a mad scientist. The final creation is a sexy bride of Frankenstein looking character. But obviously, you know, uh, Michael, we've talked about Jim Ballant in the past and how he was getting a lot of flack for for mansplaining well yeah i mean more so the the size of catwoman's breasts the way he chose to do that so here is his quote though in this tutorial about breast size on female characters strap in oh my god it says here breast size this is a very touchy subject i'm very uncomfortable <laughs> We all know that breasts come in many different sizes, and one size is no better than the other. Nor do larger breasts on a character make her any less intelligent than characters with smaller breasts. Hey, I have no breasts to speak of, but I'm still considered a big boob by certain people in the industry. Oh my god, this is so uncomfortable. Anyway, design your character with any size you want. The bottom of the breast will light up with the mid-bicep or lower on the arm. You know, so practical artistic advice there. You might have just gotten Jim Ballant cancelled by reading this. <laughs> They're gonna go, 25 years ago, he talked about women's breasts. <laughs> And, and how he draws them. I mean, he does a good enough job uh, with everything he posts on Instagram. I think you know what you're getting when you sign up for Jim Ballant. But here's the thing. He makes a really good point, I feel like, which is he says that, you know, the size of a woman's breast does not determine her intelligence, right? If they have larger breasts, doesn't mean they're automatically a bimbo. Like a stereotype. Exactly. My wife, a well-endowed woman, she is a doctor, okay? You know, so if that was the measure of her intelligence, certainly not the case. But, you know... Know, a character like Lady Death, who was most remembered for her bra size, but if you actually read the comics, is a very intelligent and focused and determined character who just happens to be idealized physically as well. Sure. <laughs> Sure. So many others. You know, Rogue, still a beloved character. Nobody calls her stupid, but she is known for being well endowed as well. Yeah. Um... But Michael is very uncomfortable, so I think we can just move on from this topic. Okay. 
Also in the works is a meetup between the main man Lobo and The Mask in a story written by Stephen Grant and Mask creator John Arcuti with art by Doug Mankey and Keith Williams on inks. Says project editor Dan Raspler, the closest thing it compares to is a giant Bugs Bunny Yosemite Sam fight. It's tremendous. It's gorgeous. It's hilarious stuff. Yeah, I mean, that gets my attention. Anytime you put the original Mask creative team together, like especially Doug Mankey's art, it is so detailed, but so like punk rock cartoony that it just gets me excited. Like I love just all the little crags and little, you know, flourishes that he puts in the art. It's always cool. Yeah. But Michael, there's plenty to get excited about in this issue of Wizard Magazine. So I think it's time we dive into our table of contents. Now, Wizard 61 with a September 1996 cover date features two wildly different cover images. The first is a Psylocke versus Sabretooth cover by Bart Sears, but he is again, for some unknown reason, using his Whitman, his undercover moniker for this. And here's what they have to say in the big book of covers about it. From looking at the initial sketch for the cover to the final design, you can see how the changes of a simple gesture could alter the feel of a piece. The initial sketch has Sabretooth missing his swing, Dope! while in the final version, he's rearing back for what looks to be a monstrous swipe at Psylocke. So yeah, so it's just interesting that they give you the original concept. They don't say that they told him to change it. Maybe he decided it was more dynamic, but it is kind of funny just to see how he is, uh, you know, at first like, oh, I missed, and Psylocke is obviously the winner. The other one, there's a little bit more suspense, I guess you would say. Okay, I like, I, I, I get that. I, I can see that. I do like this cover a lot. It's very, very nice. Now, the other cover is actually very different for Wizard because this is a Ghost in the Shell cover by Masamuni Shiro based on the animated feature film that was hitting theaters in the summer of 1996. So again, they knew that anime was really heating up. That was getting popular. So I guess they decided to make that the cover image. It is interesting to note as well, though, that issue 44 of Wizard, so way back when with the Gen 13 cover, actually had a Ghost in the Shell mini comic when it was just a manga title. So they've kind of had their foot in the Ghost of the Shell Waters for a while. Now, as far as the goodies that came packed in with the issue, there was a wizard double-sided Youngblood X-Force dual chrome card, they call it, promoting the upcoming crossover by you-know-who. Ooh, hey now. Also in the mix was a Lady Death trading card, and also sub-issues, not all, but some included a Superman Kingdom Come trading card as well, which is a series I didn't even know existed. They're kind of like these widescreen extra-large cards. If I had know that Kingdom Come existed back in the day. I'm sure I would have grabbed some of those. I would have picked those up too if I knew they existed too. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it feels like the justification is probably the fact that this issue also bizarrely featured an insert poster that was the Alex Ross Kingdom Come cover from issue 57? And, and like, I don't know why they did that. Like, it's, oh, now's the right time to use this. It's just like, no, you should have done it for that issue. Hmm. Seemingly the thing they are most excited about, though, because it is proudly boasting on top of the polybag text that this is the first ever Marvel half issue being offered, a Heroes Reborn half issue. Even Garib himself in his From the Top letter says, also this month, the incredible Heroes Reborn half debuts, our first Marvel half ever. With creators Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, this is a can't-miss opportunity. So yeah, so this is definitely something where I guess they had never had that tight a relationship with Marvel, and now it was official, and there were many, many more to come. We have it in the archives, I have read it, and 
And uh, it doesn't quite deliver on what they promise here. He says, the biggest event to rock the comic industry in years begins right here in Heroes Reward Half. Get it on the ground floor with the Marvel Rebirth of this issue, and you'll get two separate, brand new, all original stories featuring all the pocket universe characters, the Avengers, Captain America, the Fantastic Four, and Iron Man. All the creators you will come to know and love on these titles. Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, and Scott Lobdell. Behind-the-scenes sketchbook material, blah, blah, blah. So it goes on to all this, right? But here's the thing. When you actually get the Heroes Reborn half issue, all it is is like a three or four page Rob Liefeld some headshots of the characters from Captain America. And while there is like a short Iron Man story in the back that's at least has a narrative of some sort, it's penciled by some guy named Robert Taranish, who I've never heard of, so it's hardly Wills Portacio. And then the rest of it is filled out with sketches, so I just have a feeling that they did not have time to actually make this half issue as they promised. They're just like, ah, what, what have we got lying around? And they just threw it together. But... <laughs> If you want a copy of the Heroes Reborn half issue, you should be watching our social media because I think that we're going to have a little giveaway. Just stay tuned for the mini episode and we'll give you a heads up. Oh, boy. But let's get into our cover stories here, Michael. They are as wildly different as the covers themselves, but uniquely entertaining nonetheless. So for the X-Men topic, they have a title, Excuse Me? And I don't know if they're trying to go with, like, the Steve Martin, Well, excuse me! Or for some of the gamers out there, they might have been going for the link from the Zelda cartoon on the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. Well, excuse me, princess. (laughs) (laughs) So the topic of this article, they explain as, quote, the 10 most outrageous mutant makeovers of X-Men characters over the 30-year history of the team. Uh, Now, most recently, Wolverine had had his adamantium ripped out by Magneto, and then a group tried to give it back, but the procedure didn't take, so now the character had regressed into a noseless beast. So, of course, that is the top one here. Were you a fan of that particular Wolverine look? No, not at all. And I don't know, you know, if anybody really was. I mean, I think a lot of people like the Joe Mad art, but I do not believe that anybody was a fan of this very strange design overall. Like, why take away his nose? It was, it was just a strange, strange choice. But other transformations mentioned include Professor X subconsciously creating his onslaught persona, uh, Psylocke going from a, you know, demure British lady to having her mind placed inside the body of a Japanese assassin, and the Angel becoming Archangel at the hands of Apocalypse, and the Beast getting blue and furry. Like, I would say more people knew him being blue and furry because of the animated series, and really, he'd been that way since the 70s, right? So it just feels like that was something that was well-established, more so than his ape hands and feet look. Now, the other thing they mentioned, of course, is Jean Grey becoming the Phoenix, but then it really feels like they run out of steam, because they mentioned Iceman just gaining more control of his icy form and abilities, and then the other other phoenix rachel summers she makes a list just for being a weird time traveler and it's even funnier because wizard asks scott lobdell what his plans are for the character and his only response is no plans at all (laughs) 
It's very bizarre. It's a, it's an interesting character, but they don't know what to do with that character, unfortunately. Yeah, I just remember her as one of the cool trading cards in the Marvel Series 1 and Series 2. But, Michael, let me ask you this. Can you think of an outstanding X-Metamorphosis? Which I think would have been maybe a better title for the article. See, I'm getting out my red pen, wizard. Uh, but just uh, an X-Men character who had changed in some way that was significant to you over the years. Um, I, I always like when they sort of reimagine Rogue and they change her look a little bit here and there when Jean Grey initially became Phoenix I liked it but they do it so many times now I'm just like I don't care anymore but I really going back to Professor Xavier I liked the onslaught idea I don't think they I don't think they executed it as well as they could have but I liked that idea a lot what about you I think for me, it's more of a character metamorphosis than like a physical change. Because I think of somebody like Emma Frost, who started out just like an out and out bad guy, right? She's a villain. She's leading the evil mutant team against the new mutants. Then just a few years later, she's leading Generation X. But then she kind of goes on to become an anti-hero, you know, and then like Civil War, she's really on the X-Men side. And even to this day, right, she's basically just one of the good guys. Yeah. And I mean, like, Magneto's been similar in, like, back and forth, back and forth. He's going to lead the X-Men for a time. You know, he's got his weird M costume, you know, or then they turn him into a baby. So I guess there's a physical change there. And also his Zorn identity. So I guess and Magneto's been pretty crazy, too. Yeah, I think so. I, I think you're right there. I Actually, you know, one more you could throw into the mix is Dazzler, just by the nature of her being a pop star and having to go with the treads, right? Because her original incarnation, she's a disco queen, right? And then what do you have next? She's in the 80s. She's got the short hair. She's got kind of the aerobics look. And then she's just like ever evolving as the decades go on. She kind of takes on the pop star, rock star persona. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. You know, one book that I did like when Cyclops, this is much, much from the future. He changed his helmet to have a big X in it. And so when he blasts his, his beam, it comes out like an X. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I remember that. I kind of I like that look. I don't know why. Yeah, given how on-brand that would be, it's surprising that Jack Kirby didn't do that originally in the 60s to just have Cyclops shooting an X-beam out there. But let's get into our second cover story here, Michael, because this is another unique piece for Wizard. They had six Wizard staffers go to see the Ghost in the Shell movie and then provide the reviews of the film. Again, like we talked about, not their normal thing to do reviews, and the results of this article may indicate as to why. Uh, although it really does feel like they were definitely trying to test the waters for their full-fledged anime magazine that would launch just a few years later. But while all the reviewers seem to agree that the film is very hard to follow, some give it a pass because of the beautiful animation. So in the final analysis, I've always wanted to say that. Anybody? The guy running the newsstand and Watchmen? Anyway. Uh, so we get three thumbs up reviews from production director Doug Goldstein, contributing editor Andrew Carden, and price guide editor Bob Marshall. While the opposing thumbs down votes came from designer Arlene So, editor Brian Cunningham, and the late great editor-in-chief Pat McCallum. But it's the thing about this, there's no snarky comments, there's no comedic angle, it's literally just straight reviews and critiques, which I think if it had the wizard comedy polish, it could have been a little more fun. Maybe they were trying not to offend, I don't know, but it just, it kind of misses the mark. But here I am, I'm reviewing the reviews, my bad. <laughs> But, you know, I can't provide a review of the film because I've never seen it. Uh, so I have to ask you, Michael, have you ever seen the original anime of Ghost in the Shell or the American adaptation with Scarlett Johansson? I haven't seen the, the Scarlett Johansson one. I've seen most of the Ghost in the Shell 
uh, animated movie, but I too thought I was like, this is very hard to follow. I don't know what's going on. It's 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 visually stunning, but it is very confusing. Yeah, because I think I saw it on the shelf at Suncoast Motion Picture Company at the mall at one point, but I grabbed the Giver instead. And so, yeah, I never have experienced it truly. Priorities, you know. <laughs> well, you know, uh, for me, they're very well defined. <laughs> but Michael, I think this next piece might be right up your alley. Uh, Crime Alley? Another interesting feature is Gotham City, the complete series by Scott Beatty, who would go on to co-write quite a few official comic stories set in Batman's home turf. It's basically a tourism guide to Gotham City with a map of all the different neighborhoods and districts, a brief history of its founding and sights to see. Some of these stats have to be made up, though. 29 musical theater venues, 88 newspaper published... 98 radio stations, lowest temperature on record is negative 19 degrees. I don't think Danny O'Neill was keeping that kind of data coordinated amongst his writers. Yeah, it's just like, where did they come up with this stuff? I do think that the 29 musical theaters, 88 newspapers, and 98 radio stations might be a reflection of New York City. I mean, that that was my assumption, too, is they just took a travel brochure for New York City and said, oh, okay, we'll just throw these stats in. And I also wonder if the minus 19 degrees may have been the coldest day in recorded history in New York City, and maybe that's why they did that. Let me ask you a question. Do you like these kind of attempts to blur the lines between reality and fiction? I mean, I really do, generally speaking. Like, I just love that idea of, like, expanding the world and, like, oh, what if this magazine actually exists? Like, for example, you know, when Superman died, they had that Newstime magazine where they had, like, you know, people writing in from the city and ads from Metropolis and all that kind of stuff, which was really cool. Oh, I remember that. The only thing I'll say about this particular production, though, is that it's just really dry. It it doesn't have, like, an entertainment value to it. Like, there's not, like, some fun Easter eggs for anybody really other than to say like oh if you go you might see the mysterious batman the legendary figure blah 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 but otherwise it's just kind of like ah, okay it, it is what it is it sounds like a travel brochure you know what book that i do like i have it i got a couple maybe it's got to be 15 years ago now but it was like the the complete guide to you know becoming batman it's like one of those like you know survival guides I, and it's like how to build your own batmobile how to build a grappling gun and it's like oh this is cool i love that book i have that for years yeah that sounds really cool Cool. I was just at Goodwill the other day and I saw this book that was like the science behind Batman's gadgets. I tried to get my son to pick it up, but he didn't want it. I mean, this is kind of interesting. And I, I think based on the way comics work and, you know, retcons and so on and so forth, whatever might have been, you know, lore in this book is probably retconned 10 times over in the last 30 years. So it's probably not relevant to today, guys, if you were to buy this somewhere on eBay or what have you. True, but the one interesting footnote to this, because we did interview Scott on The Wizard Files. You can go back and find that interview in the archives. And he is someone who, in addition to writing comic book stories, has also done a bunch of reference books very similar to this for both Marvel and DC. So it's very possible that at this point, he's the person kind of setting the stage for what are like the definite facts of those universes. So it'd just be interesting to look into now are we going to talk about the picture that's to the left of this at all tonight yes i was saving that for you i was sure you would notice it and have some commentaries so take it away so this is 
the cover to Nightwing number one. And I actually have this issue. I remember seeing this cover and I was like, I must buy this. And this was like one of the few things in the 90s that I jumped back on because of this cover and the redesign of Nightwing's costume. It says, murder, assault, robbery, kidnapping. Not in his town, Nightwing by Chuck Dixon. And it just, it's this beautiful cover it's the the blue and black nightwing costume which has kind of stayed the staple for the last you know 25 years other than little tweaks here and there it's it's such a fantastic cover and it's one of my favorite nightwing covers of all time to this date yeah i remember the impact of this ad as well just this redesign because obviously dick grayson had been nightwing for quite a while and it was one of those things where i just remember like okay in the early 90s he's getting you know the update to the costume and he's wearing that during nightfall yeah and he's got kind of the mullet ponytail thing going on but then to see this that is just so far away from the disco nightwing outfit it was such an impact and yeah with cosplayers and everybody else you just see it so much but moving away from nightwing uh, we got something else that's hot 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 and that is a feature called fire drill it is a behind the scenes photo journal of joe casada jimmy palmiotti creating their ash number zero issue they are breaking down the process of making a comic book from start to finish now apparently this feature was begun in december of 1995 and now it is finally being published in september of 1996 so wizard really invested in the idea long term took a lot of photos along the way now one of the interesting tidbits that i gleaned from all this includes the fact that joe casada says he did his layouts for each individual page on post-it notes he says that that is some sort of old artist trick did everyone just catch that Adam said gleaned? <laughs> <laughs> My word a day calendar is paying off, I guess. SAT word, folks. <laughs> now, vocabulary aside, uh, the interesting thing that Joe clarifies is that although for this particular project he did lay everything out ahead of time that is not his normal way to produce a comic book he says he prefers to just start on a page do it stream of consciousness style he says quote i don't like to lay out all the pages of a book at once it just burns me out completely now of his contribution to the art process jimmy palmiotti reveals that joe casada makes him work harder quote lots of times i could do other guys faster but joe's one a day the details on his pages just require a lot of time meanwhile the colorist ruben rude requires 10 hours per page for the project bottom line each issue of an event comic from casada and palmiati is literally a work of art they were just slaving over this stuff i believe it may also account for the fact why issues took so long to come out in between one another <laughs> but you know that did seem to be the case with a lot of independent publishers of the day learn the ropes and speaking of the independent our next feature here small world is an article spotlighting five indie creators to help bring attention to their work so i have to ask you first thing michael can you think of any independent book at this time that might have had your attention that you would have picked up nowadays you're all about the small press books but back then i was too young to appreciate it or know any better all i really knew of of indies at the time was image and i was like i'm not interested in spawn or young blood and that was kind of it but i i wish because I, i've gone back in time and looked at some stuff here and there and there's some cool stuff that's off the beaten path if you will 
Well, you're going to have a chance to see what you missed out on here, Michael. There's plenty of stuff to talk about. We're going to start first with the uh, cartoony sci-fi fantasy adventure Akiko by Mark Crilly, featuring, you know, stories of space princes and robots and aliens and all this stuff. So this creator worked on the book while he was teaching English in Japan, and he said he would bring one finished page a week to show his students, and they loved it, and then he just adapted it all into a comic book and started telling it sequentially, even though the story was designed that way anyway, but uh, now the exciting thing for this guy is the concept had been optioned by Universal Studios as a possible animated series. I don't think that was ever produced, but Akiko? Ring a bell? It does. When I saw that, I was like, huh, I wonder, because I think it's like, isn't it like a, a motorcycle thing with it? I think you might be thinking of the much more popular but similarly named Akira? Maybe I think of Akira, yeah. But yeah, just as we had never heard of Akiko, I don't think anybody's really heard of this next one. It is called Gold Digger by Fred Perry. Uh, This was created after he came back from his military service in the Desert Storm conflict, as he describes it, quote, something with an Indiana Jones feel to it with a little bit of cheesecake. And I will tell you, so I tried to check out as many of these as I could find, and I did read an issue or two of Gold Digger. Definitely bigger on the cheesecake. It's like cheesecake for furries, because... Because it, basically what you have, it's the tale of a female treasure hunter named Gina, who's human. She's kind of like a Lara Croft. But her sister happens to be half human, half cheetah. And she's like this furry creature, but she's wearing like Daisy Dukes and crop tops and stuff. You know what I'm saying? So uh, it's definitely a lot of that going on there. But they, their adventures are dealing with like black magic and interdimensional travel. There was a lot going on there. Not necessarily for me, but uh, for somebody out there. Okay. And then the next one here, Arachnus, is the brainchild of brothers Mike and Mario Ortiz with Gene Jimenez. And though the main character basically looks like an evil version of the Steel Spider from Marvel Comics, the character actually got its start after winning a contest that Eric Larson ran in Savage Dragon, allowing the winner to have their creation drawn into the book, which there seemed to be a lot of that going around here, right? Because you got that uh, Char in Rude. And then do you remember uh, Eric Larson had actually done this before? four in a previous issue that we talked about i think it was like lobster johnson it was like this lobster popeye character yes yes i remember that well in an attempt to possibly pique your interest more about arachnus michael this is the story of a scientist who gets possessed by an evil interdimensional entity and it seems his creators are maybe a bit too confident in the potential success saying quote our goal is to get 500 issues out of this but who knows now maybe it'll be a thousand sadly the character did not make it past 1997 after a few miniseries are we shocked <laughs> Yeah, not a lot of hope there for Arachnus. Uh, but there is another one here that you might be interested in, but probably not. Towland by Jeff Amato is a wild combination, get this, of Kung Fu and Norse mythology starring animal gods. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there, but it is beautifully illustrated. It looks painted, and what Jeff Amato explains is, quote, Basically, what I do is pencil the pages, scan them into the computer, and paint them with a digital brush. It's a difficult process. It takes about two days to do one page. Of course, nowadays, that's kind of the common practice, right? Just using the computers. But back in the day, this was cutting edge. Now, our final book here is Kabuki by David Mack, which is a comic I saw advertised in half-page advertisements with Razor and other indie bad girl books uh, all throughout Wizard. But this is 
something where I always just kind of wrote it off as a she clone, you know, just like, oh yeah, well, you know, he's just trying to piggyback on that. But at this point, David Mack, the creator, had already received an Eisner and Harvey Award. Uh, and really, his stuff is a deep dive into Japanese history like she, and it does feature a female assassin like she. But unlike she, this book has an outrageous art style that really involves like surreal layouts, just mixes of watercolor and oil pastels and traditional, you know, pen and ink stuff. But it's kind of more reminiscent, I would say, in a lot of ways of the Dave McKean covers for Sandman comics. Okay. But the stories are much more introspective and like psychological for the character. Not so much, you know, action and violence and things like that necessarily. But uh, the other thing just in recent news is that David Mack, he eventually went on for Marvel Knights to do the Echo series, you know, a solo series spinoff from Daredevil and stuff like that. And uh, now that series is the basis for the Disney Plus Echo miniseries that's coming out. So That's cool. So now the question becomes, Michael, just based on concept alone, would any of these get you to pick up the comic now? Any of them catch your interest? I don't know. I'd, I'd have to really like... So, you know, what, what usually gets me is a good cover. So if I look at a cover and I say, wow, that looks kind of cool, and I might open a few pages of it, I, I couldn't say without seeing them physically to be a fair judge of, of any of these things. Okay, so striking visual first, and then maybe the story surprises you with being good. Yes. Well, I'm not sure that philosophy would work for this next subject here, because New World Order is yet another Heroes Reborn article, building the hype for Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld's return to Marvel. Basically, Lee and Liefeld are explaining once again that their stories are going to go back to basics with just a few tweaks, but their art really is the center stage, right? That is the thing that's getting people excited. So as far as new information, though, or new takes, Rob provides a commentary on his controversial replacing of Mark Wade and Ron Garney on Captain America when he says, quote, they've done a great job. They've helped heal Cap. I hope I can continue the healing process, but this is an opportunity opportunity to launch him from day one and make him exciting for the young kids out there. <laughs> it's an old man thing to say. Gotta make it exciting for the, young, for the youngins out there, yeah? Keeping in mind, Rob isn't even 30 at this point. <laughs> he sounds old there. But in addition to this story, Wizard News had a piece that announced Chuck Dixon was Liefeld's original choice to write the series, but as Liefeld explains, quote, Chuck handed in the first pages and we were very disappointed with the direction his script took. We just weren't on the same page. So what I find hilarious is that Jeff Loeb, his replacement, seems to really understand how to work with Rob and not get fired when he says, quote, this is Rob's show. It was always Rob's show. And I think that's great. <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go to the bank. Cha-ching! <laughs> I just added that in. I'm almost certain uh, Jeff Loeb just knew, yep, time to get paid. Gonna ride that train. <laughs> Jim Lee didn't really have a whole lot to say about his Iron Man or Fantastic Four, uh, but together, Rob and Jim did kind of make an interesting statement where they said, quote, the best way to honor Stan and Jack is not to imitate them, but to take a different direction. They put a new spin on the idea of superheroes, and that's what we hope to do. That did seem to be the philosophy with Heroes Reborn, which is 
just to say, hey, here's characters you like, but let's give you something new to like about them. Eh? Fair enough. But that is not the last we're going to hear from Marvel castaways turned Image founders, because there is a new castaway from Image, and that is Mark Silvestri in this Q&A with Wizard. He drops some bombs, so uh, let's get into it. Wow. So the cliffhanger we left the listeners with last episode, Michael, when you weren't here, was who was the Image founder that Silvestri ended up having irreconcilable differences with that caused him to leave and split and take Top Cow and make it its own publishing entity outside of the image banner. I'm going to guess. Yes, that is the plan. So I just want to tell you the clues, what we determined from the information we had available based on Wizard Magazine was that it was not Todd because he had confided in Todd McFarlane, discussed it with him. It was not Eric Larson. It was not brought up there. Will Sportacio, Jim Valentino, all seem to be people you don't have problems with. So it really only left Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, the two guys going back to Marvel to do Heroes Reborn. So in your mind... Who could it be? Is it the obvious choice? Um, I don't know. Jim Lee's such a likable guy. I gotta say, it's gotta be Rob Liefeld, unfortunately. I mean, it seems too on the nose, but who knows? I could be wrong. I probably am wrong. Well, Michael, thanks to the Wizard Q&A with Mark Silvestri, now the truth can be told. So first up, Wizard asks, did the clashes at Image have anything to do with the Image Marvel situation involving Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld's Heroes Reborn? Answer, absolutely not. That never came into play. I have to stress the fact that I still love the Image guys, and I still get along with most of them. There was just a clash between myself and one other person at Image, and that clash kind of brought the final decision to leave to a head for me. So Wizard asks, was it one of the image founding fathers yes but i won't tell you who it is because it's not something i really want to do suffice it to say i get along very well with most of the image people i've been talking to jim and rob i mean jim and todd well i think that kind of answers your question i've been in contact with jim and todd and we definitely want to work together even after i make the final split from image we respect one another and we respect what we've done so yeah so there you go the truth is out yes it was indeed rob liefeld because who doesn't have a problem with rob Liefeld at some point. <laughs> and that's not sour grapes. We don't say that just because we have had our own issues with Rob. It just comes down to the facts speak for themselves. Although, speaking of which, it's interesting that on the Rob Observations podcast, when Rob tells this story about choosing to leave Image or being kicked out more accurately, he does not mention having a problem with Mark Silvestri. He never brings up that that is an issue, which is a strange omission in my mind. You know, I, I gotta go back and listen again, because maybe I missed it. But as I recall, he never said, oh, Mark Silvestri and I had a fight. So I don't know. There, there's a lot going on in that story, and there is much more reporting to come in the pages of wizard which has been refuted by rob but we will just see how it all plays out mm. this is not the end of wizards reporting on the situation i mean this is a huge story at the time so wizard actually devotes two more pages all to the sylvestri and top cow departure okay and so we get quotes from todd eric larson jim valentino and they all say basically you know we're sad to see him go then wizard immediately starts speculating on whether or not image will replace Sylvestri with another up-and-coming creator. So I feel like they're creating a story that's not a story. But the names thrown around are Joe Manorera, who says he's basically not ready to leave X-Men, but he imagines that that's 100% where he would be at Image if it wasn't at Marvel with such a cush job. Wow. Brian Polito of Chaos Comics, who says, quote, I would never join in a million years. 
He seems very happy doing his own thing. Joe Casada mentions that he is open to it, but he has a concern about Image being exclusive with just one distribution company. That is the sticky wicket for him, which I found interesting. Uh, Dan Jurgens says he would, but, quote, I don't want to have a studio full of 85 guys who have to find enough work for to keep busy. So he's just like, if it was just me doing my thing, I guess. Billy Tucci, who in our interview indicated to us that he actually thought it was a real possibility. He was in tight enough with the image guys, he thought the invitation might be coming. And then finally, Adam Kubert, who states matter-of-factly, quote, I would consider all serious offers. <laughs> I just love that. He's just like, yep, sure, if they're serious. There you go. Wizard then went so far as to poll their AOL users on Wizard World to determine which of these hot comics artists and creators they thought should join Image. So, Joe Quesada won with 50% of the vote. Billy Tucci got 25%. Joe Maderera got just 17%, which is surprising, you know, when you see how big he becomes. And then Dan Jurgens got just 8%. Hilariously, they also asked if Mark Silvestri leaving Image would influence their buying Image comics in the future. 8% said yes. 92% said no. Wow. So this issue, big on Mark Silvestri, do you have a connection to any of his work? Is there something where you would say, oh yeah, I definitely have this in my log box? Or for you, you just say, oh yeah, well, I recognize him as a great artist in this way. Or is he just, you know, someone who was there, but not on your list? I'm sure I've bought his stuff. Absolutely. You know, you, you ask me these questions and put me on the spot. Like, I can remember things. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying, like, if it doesn't come immediately to mind, oh, yeah, I'm a Mark Silvestri fan, I think that's my answer, right? I mean, I, I do think certain things he does is, is really, really nice. I'm sure I've got, you know, an, an X-Men cover of something somewhere or a Wolverine issue somewhere. But, like, eh. I don't know. I've only got a, a handful of people that I'm like, oh, I must buy every one of their covers and all that kind of stuff. And he's not on the list. Yeah, that's fair. No, not on that list. No, no offense. To you. So there you go. Well, Michael, something I have no doubt about that you were a fan of were the movies coming to theaters in 1996. So let's uh, check out some of that news in Heroes in Motion. So the top item in the trailer park section of Wizard, <laughs> this issue is an update to the seemingly never-ending saga of the Generation X TV movie becoming an ongoing television series. Though it was reported last issue that the series has not been picked up for the fall season by Fox Network, now New World Entertainment is reportedly producing 22 hour-long episodes for syndication in 1997. It's stated that the original characters will return for the series, but they may have to recast a few roles. Of course, this never happens, leaving Adam and Steven to only become more obsessed with the could-have-been series nearly 30 years later. <laughs> 
Well, the thing is, when we did our bonus episode on the Generation X TV movie, available in the archives, go check it out. We had no idea. Like, I didn't go this far ahead in the magazines. I just dropped it at, oh, it never got picked up by Fox, and that was the end of it. I had no idea that they were trying to produce it as a syndicated series. Maybe Steven remembered that, but I certainly didn't. And so it's one of those things where now I'm reading, I'm like, oh, man. I mean, can you imagine if it had been in something where it lasted for three or four new seasons? on the USA Network. Uh, those actors would be doing surprise cameos, you know, in some Disney Plus Marvel series. But the funny thing is, nowadays, if that had happened now, they could have probably tried to get it on a streaming platform. Oh, for sure. Speaking of Fox and Marvel, the network has signed an exclusivity deal with the publisher to create 20 new animated series based on their characters for the network over the next seven years. This never comes to fruition, however, as Spider-Man Unlimited in 1999 is the final Marvel series that is ever broadcast on Fox after the Silver Surfer in 1998. Yeah, Spider-Man Unlimited, a whole other can of worms. They actually get a wizard half issue when that comes out. But uh, speaking of these you know, planned 20 projects that never happened, when we were doing the Generation X bonus episode, here we go again, Steven was doing research. He found video of like a stockholders video presentation where they were trying to make a Generation X like cartoon series, you know, to piggyback off of the X-Men series ending. So that was another thing thing is like a what if and it never happened there was just like some concept sketches and stuff so which might have been better that way because then you could you could have kept the original actors doing the voices they could have worked on side projects at the same time and you know yeah it would have been a very interesting evolution next in heroes in motion i can i i, I know where this is going <laughs> shaquille o'neal has been cast as john henry irons in the live action steel movie which is being written by kenneth johnson who wrote and directed the incredible hulk TV series pilot in the 70s. Wizard notes that it is not yet known what connection this film will have to the Superman mythos. Answer? None! Steel has more in common with Meteor Man than the DC Universe. <laughs> oh, Meteor Man, the bonus episode we've never delivered. Someday, someday. But yeah, it just feels like the, it is like that same vibe to it. And yet there's there's just no reference at all to Metropolis. I don't think there's a Superman comic book or just there's nothing in there that makes you think it would be at all related to Superman, which is like a major missed opportunity. Can you think of anything? I, I don't think so at all. It was, yeah. I mean, the costume is the most embarrassing thing. Like, why did it have to be garbage that was pulled together in a junkyard? It feels like superhero Fat Albert. Like, I just, it, it was one of those things I was just like, I remember seeing the poster be like, what are they doing? <laughs> it was so bad. Yeah, that movie is a bummer. It's like, again, if CGI was a thing, they'd be able to probably have done this much, much better. I bet if they did a steel movie now, that might be really cool and look visually awesome. I mean, even back then, they did the T-1000. It's a silver, shiny character. They could have just added some texture and some rivets and made it steel. Ah, let's get off this topic. Very upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take this next one. Of course you are. Of course you are. 
So, Mike Allred really wants to direct the live-action Madman movie that is in development at Universal Studios, so he took his option money he received from them to produce, write, star, and direct in his own movie called Astro-esque, which is described as an action-adventure science-fiction religious epic. There's a lot going on there. Uh, but according to the Madman creator, quote, it was all made for under $10,000. And it kind of shows. But the thing is, Allred also provided the music for the film using the band name Red Rocket 7. Red Rocket? <laughs> what? Oh, you're, you're thinking what a Red Rocket in relation to a dog. <laughs> Get your head out of the gutter, Michael. Ridiculous. <laughs> I'm just too well-versed in Allred's work to have ever considered that because he actually goes on to produce a comic book called Red Rocket 7. It is about a group of clones that are an intergalactic rock band and they crash on Earth in the 50s and they meet like a little Richard and Elvis and they go through the 60s with the Beatles and the Stones and then they're in the 70s with David Bowie. Like they're kind of influencing music history behind the scenes. And then he goes on, I just dug this CD out of my storage. Pretty Produces an album in conjunction with that called The Gear. Well, that's the name of his band, is The Gear. And so it's kind of just very trippy, very, you know, kind of 60s Velvet Underground style music. And uh, yes, it's not great. It's okay. Uh, but then Astro-esque, this movie that we're talking about here, actually does get like a limited VHS release. It's on YouTube now. You can watch it. And it's just like, it's an interesting experiment, I guess you would say. I will, All Red is really good screen presence from the perspective of he has like really long hair he wears a trench coat you know he's like super 90s cool guy look he's got a very deep voice he kind of talks like this not exactly Stallone but the vibe I guess you would get is a kind of a Robert Rodriguez style film Robert Rodriguez um not Spy Kids era Robert Rodriguez El Mariachi like his first movie yeah definitely more El Mariachi than anything um, I would say the better film because you know Astro S is probably just a curiosity, but later on, G-Men from Hell gets adapted from Allred's work in Madman comics, and that is much more just goofball fun and also low budget, but much more entertaining, just from a, you know, you kind of want a so bad it's good perspective. Well, speaking of Mike Allred, I wanted to again give a shout out to him and thank him for letting us use the uh, Madman t-shirts in UFO Club, which just premiered at the Long Island International Film Expo last week and won the Audience Award for the festival as well. And, uh, you know, it was a super cool experience, and I want to shout out to Stephen, you know, for directing the movie and being the captain of the ship. And again, thank you, Michael Red, for letting us use your shirts. Yeah, honestly, congratulations to both of you guys. A very fun film and nice accomplishment for you. And hey, I even have a little part to play in all of that. But yeah, very cool. And you know, when it comes out on home video or streaming, most likely, then people can actually see those Madman shirts for themselves. You bet. So next up, The Tick is reportedly getting the live-action primetime series on Comedy Central. After the cartoon comes back for a third season as part of the Fox Saturday morning lineup. Of course, we know this series eventually goes to Fox, not Comedy Central. And it stars Seinfeld alum Patrick Warburton, which if anybody could have been a better cast for The Tick, I could not 
picture it, in my opinion. Oh, he was just so good. So good. And, you know, I, I loved that series when it came out. I have the DVD of the complete series. I watch it all the time. And, I, you know, I've watched a little bit. I think I watched the first season of The Tick on Amazon. And just a very different vibe. It doesn't have the cartoony tone that that original Fox series. Plus, Batman well! Oh, I love Batman well. I've never watched the Amazon series. I just, I don't know. That should have just been frozen in time and where it was. And next up, Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti's Ash has been optioned by DreamWorks for an animated film. Though it was originally brought to the studio as a potential live action project, this film never makes it to production. Yeah, it felt like DreamWorks was buying up all sorts of properties back at this time and kept promising us all these superhero, you know, comic book adaptations. And it just never happened. It's just, I just tried to imagine what they would have accomplished, you know. And of course, we get Prince of Egypt and more Shrek movies and all these things. But imagine if there had been an Ash film. Like, just, it would have been so out of the box i wonder if it would have been a hit just randomly like hey what is this look at the awesome animation i don't know well this was dreamworks like in its infancy when it was like first first becoming a studio and you know they were probably trying to buy up properties all the time so that they could get them from the big studios before they would have their claws in them and it's a shame because they could have made some really cool movies but it, what i think about this is so funny though right we're talking about 1996 here and there's so many comic properties being bought up or optioned for movies that never see the light of day. Fast forward to 2022. Think about how many movies we see coming out today that are, you know, Marvel movies, all kinds of other comic studios are now seeing their movies come to life for real. Like we're getting a profit movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal and they relaunched that book, for God's sakes. Like, like it just blows my mind how it's repeating itself so to speak yes maybe we will finally see ash the movie not likely uh, but michael why don't you close this out here and lastly in heroes in motion we have a wizard casting call this time they are sharing their ideas on a live action superman movie and i will say of all of the casting calls this might be the worst. Really? I, wow. I, oh, I, so we start off with Superman Clark Kent as Rob Etsy's or SC's or whatever you say from the show Silk Stockings. And uh, I, I just don't see it at all. I, other than having black hair and like a pointy chin, like I, I don't see it. Yeah, I mean, he's just a generally generic, good-looking 90s guy. Could have been on Melrose Place or something. But, Michael, more importantly, are you telling me you never watched some Silk Stockings back in the day? Did I watch six Silk Stockings on USA? Yes, I could say that I watched a few episodes of it. Yes, I can, <laughs> you know, when you're up late at night and you have your little CRT TV and you're, you know, you're like, all right, whatever. Gotta go to sleep somehow. Yeah, honestly, I've never heard of it. But at the same time, what's strange is that Wizard in their little profile on the animated series, they made a comment that you could basically just take the voice cast of the WB Superman series and then just put all of them into a movie because they're all screen actors in TV as well. So it's weird that Wizard is going so far outside the box for this. Yeah. So for Lois Lane, they have uh, Kim Delaney, who... Okay, I, I can see that. You know, she's okay, but again, I, I don't know. I don't know if I, I fully get it. I actually think the um, Melissa Gilbert, who they have listed as Lana Lang, might be a better fit for Lois Lane, in my opinion. 
I had to flip-flop them. Well, what struck me, and I thought you were going this way, is that, you know, just to get back to my point, is here they have Kim Delaney, who is an actress I'm not familiar with, but then Dana Delaney voiced Lois Lane on the animated series, and they are not related. I thought they were sisters or something, but there is an E in one of their spellings that just differentiates them. But again, like, she was on China Beach, I remember, a show I've never seen, but I always heard Dana Delaney, China Beach, so she was known. Just make her Lois Lane, come on. But who's next here on the list? Brian Dennehy as Perry White. I can see where they came up with this, but he's too grizzled. Like, he's just too gruff. Like, I feel like he's just too much to be even Perry White. Like, Perry White has a little bit of a softness to him, where Brian Dennehy has no softness to him at all. <laughs> what do you mean? We all saw Tommy Boy. He was a loving dad in that before he died. He has, like, about a three-minute part of the whole movie. <laughs> You blink and you miss them. So for Jimmy Olsen, they have Neil Patrick Harris. Of all of the people on this list, I could say, sure. He may actually be too old at this point, even still, to play Jimmy Olsen. Well, you say that, but how long did Mark McClure play Jimmy Olsen in those movies? He was like Jimmy Olsen for like 10 years playing Easily. a teenager. <laughs> Easily. Lastly, for Lex Luthor, what's your thoughts on this one? Yeah, so for Lex Luthor, they want an actor named Daniel Benzali, who is this bald guy with glasses. He was on a show called Murder One, which I don't recall, but he's definitely got the erudite, like, oh, I'm better than you look to him. But honestly, hear me out here. So my thought was seeing Neil Patrick Harris listed as a Jimmy Olsen contender, what if, and I, and I know this was like several years beyond, you know, the death and return of Superman storyline, the character wasn't in the comics, but what if they went with the Lex? Luther 2 storyline, you know, just to make the villain a little more sexy, you know? And uh, they had Neil Patrick Harris play Lex Luthor II in kind of, you know, a Jesse Eisenberg, Zack Snyder type deal where you have a young kind of interesting version of the villain to play. Like, I, I just think that would uh, give it more of a, a flair to this idea than just, oh yeah, the old bald Lex Luthor. We saw it. Gene Hackman was the best Lex Luthor, you know? I'm not against it. You know what would be kind of cool? If he played Alexander Luthor, like Christ on Infinite Earth's version, you know? Wow, that would have been super deep. I don't know. Way too deep for 1990s office, for sure. They'd be like, what? Multiverse? Huh? The six Superman? What is going Huh? <laughs> anyway. So there's a whole other page of interesting side characters they wanted to put into the mix. I don't know how they would work in this story, but the first one here really caught my attention. Another child star of the 80s, and that was they want Fred Savage to play the Superboy. You know, like this clone Superboy from The Return of Superman. What do you think about that concept? So here's my thought. If we went with the Neil Patrick Harris, Lex Luthor, and him as Superboy... Yes, I can see that. Yeah, that could be like an interesting B-plot. You know, you have the younger Superman, the younger Lex Luthor, and then the older guys and they're facing off in different scenarios. That'd be kind of cool. Yes. I don't like the pick for Supergirl at all. Of all of the female, blonde-haired actresses in Hollywood, they go with Jenny McCarthy. I think Jenny McCarthy was like, 40 by the time this probably came out. <laughs> no, she wasn't. I mean, she, she was started her <clears throat> modeling career pretty early on. And then when she's on, you know, singled out hosting and all that. I, but here's my thing. This is why I like this casting idea. So 
I used to watch on MTV the Jenny McCarthy show. I remember that. Which was a sketch comedy show, kind of like The State, you know, just full of wackiness. But I recorded that show. I would watch it. It was hilarious. There was an actual sketch where she played Super Jenny. And she was like, you know, a superhero. She had a full costume and everything. So maybe that's where this came from. I can't remember if that was 96 or a little bit later that she got that show. But also the idea that everybody they've cast so far looks like a very dramatic actor. And I like the idea of J.D. McCarthy bringing in some humor. And even like you could play it into the storyline. Because if she's Supergirl and they go with the idea of her coming like to earth later okay and now superman kind of has to teach her about the world so she's a fish out of water i think there could be a lot of comedy to be mined and i feel like you need that for this movie to work at least for me all right i'll I'll, I'll agree to disagree but i'll (laughs) i'll I'll let you i'll let it go now the pa kent casting here of john mahoney of frazier i could also see him as perry white but i do I do, I do like him as Pa Kent as well. Um, he's such a great actor. Oh, my God. The movie he does with Bruce Willis, uh, I love him as the dad in that movie, even though he gets killed in it. Oh, the boat cop one. It's a fantastic movie. And it's got Eldon from Murphy Brown as, uh, in it as well. Um, Chock full of sitcom stars. You got to see that movie. If you haven't seen it, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's a great movie. <laughs> Ma Kent, Marion Ross. Um, yeah, I guess... Well, she was in that pantheon of American sitcom moms. I mean, here they're listing her as being on a show called Brooklyn Bridge, which I don't remember. Nope, I definitely remember her, know her as Mrs. Cunningham on Happy Days. Yes. We Well, we have two more. We have uh, Brainiac as Frank Langella. Again, great casting for the version of Brainiac that they depict here. Also would be a great Perry White. You know, I think he'd be fantastic. Wait, did, did he play Perry White in something? I, I feel like I'm having a connection in my brain. He had to have done it. I think he does at some point. Oh, he plays Perry White in Superman Returns. Right. Yes, he is. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you know? Wizard called it on that one. Good job. Well, no, they didn't call it. I called it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. You get the credit on that one, Michael. Good job. And now... The last thing they have is Doomsday. And I want to just read this little caption that they wrote here. As befits Soup's coolest villain, we'll create him through the coolest special effects studio, Industrial Light and Magic. You remember how all the kids were always saying, hey, Doomsday, he's the coolest. (laughs) Yeah, he's the coolest, all right. So they just want to make a CGI Doomsday. I mean, I'll be honest, yeah, CGI, blah, blah, blah. But I know this is the burgeoning of that era. But to me, to have seen like a Phil Tippett stop motion Doomsday, like, you know, a late 80s, early 90s version, that just feels like it works perfectly for this character. But then we're going to get the, you know, Roger Corman Fantastic Four looking kind of movie. I I, I don't know if that's going to fly. <laughs> It's true, but I still, I think for the chunky, kind of angular aesthetic of the character, it would just fit and it wouldn't look out of place because he's supposed to be alien anyway. I stand my ground on stop motion doomsday and funny Jenny McCarthy Supergirl. Honestly, like, I was reading an article recently about uh, Jurassic Park, and the first Jurassic Park movie, the dinosaurs are really only on screen for approximately like 13 minutes of the movie. And the CGI, there's not as much as you think. But like what I find interesting is like with a with a doomsday character, I would be very happy if like we get a CGI tease at the end of the movie. Like the last 10 seconds, you just see like like some sort of pod open up and just 
and you just see like a, a doomsday come out of it, cut cut to black. Or they just do what they did in the comics where all you get is the doom, doom, doom. And then you just like see this little in the shadows doomsday coming out and all the fanboys. I know what that means. I know what that means. Yes. They're never going to make a sequel, but we'll hope that it comes to fruition. <laughs> well, Michael, I'm sure if they were using that end credit scene to build the hype for a Superman sequel, we would have been very excited. But two other guys who know about building the hype for their projects are ready to talk. So it's time we hear what they have to say in Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Adam Pope, king of the transition. There you go. Our top story, Spawn Rocks! At least according to the sidebar ad in this issue for the Dark Saga album by metal band Iced Earth. Described as, quote, a dark, powerful, and enthralling concept album, the cover art actually features Spawn, and so does the lyrical content... The question becomes, though, can you sync the Dark Saga up to the 1997 Spawn film like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and The Wizard of Oz? Hmm. <laughs> and then do you remember that eventually McFarland does an album cover for Korn? I know the cover. I can't think of the name of the album, but I know the cover for sure. I remember it was like a dark, like moody, creepy playground thing. Yeah. I was never a Korn fan, but these girls in my sophomore English class were, they both wore Korn shirts, and one of them was that album cover. So I was like, oh. What? You were into Korn? Korn, Rage Against the Machine, Deftones. Oh my God. I was... Uh... Yeah, it's not going to go over well for an upcoming guest of ours who hosts a new metal podcast, but yeah, new metal was never for me. You were hair bands and, and metal. Yeah, I was just getting into all the stuff that was classic by that point, you know, like Black Sabbath, The Misfits, and of course Kiss that I was super obsessed with. So all the stuff that was new and creepy, you know, up to Marilyn Manson, I'm like, oh, that's not for me. But that's not all the fine art Spawn news. No, Spawn was also getting a fully painted graphic novel. It seemed like it was right about that time Alex Ross was doing it. But this artist was Mike Pryor, who had been doing posters for Lucasfilm. But just for you, Michael, you're going to have to pick up a copy because it was written by none other than Shaman's Tears creator, <laughs> Mike Grell. <laughs> Woohoo! If you're back on the podcast, so must be Shaman's Tears. Damn right. <laughs> Next up here on the Jim Lee side, rumors in the Wizard Buzz box indicate that Wildstorm Studios are planning a Batman Gen 13 crossover one-shot, as well as a JLA Wildcats book, neither of which is ever published, which seems really strange, right? Because Jim Lee was doing all this stuff with Marvel, Heroes Reborn, there's also mention of a Generation X Gen 13 crossover, which happens several times, but these ones at DC never get through, and it's a real shame, Michael, because just imagine the cross 
crossover between our two favorite characters, right? Imagine a basically a Batman story drawn by J. Scott Campbell and you missed out on it. What a bummer. It really is, especially when you think about the fact that Jim Lee in two years' time is selling Wildstorm and joining DC, and what happens? Nothing. There's no Batman and Gen 13 crossover then. He could have pushed that through. Speaking of which, I'll drop the tease here that our next guest on The Wizard Files is a gentleman named Jeff Marriott. He might not be a name that immediately springs to mind for everybody, but he was there with Jim Lee in his Wildstorm Studios, his homage studios, all of that, all the way through the sale to DC. He was a guy who was behind the scenes and his story is amazing. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I was just like, wow, this is so cool. Speaking of cool though, Michael, in the junk drawer video game section of this issue, there is an update on the Gen 13 video game that was being developed by Electronic Arts for the Sega Saturn, Nintendo 64, the Sony PlayStation. Uh, They even mentioned, you know, a PC version eventually. This was all supposed to be coming out in the summer of 1997. And in this issue, they have actual character model sketches of Fairchild that look great for a game that never came out. It looks fantastic. Like, I really like it. Yeah, and even though the designs look much more illustrated than, like, you know, CGI, they talk about that it will be fully CG rendered, you know, environments and everything like that. Maybe more like Donkey Kong Country or something? I don't know. Oh, wow. But the thing is that they actually have a pretty funny quote here as far as the direction they're taking it, because it says, quote, EA is approaching the game with a sexy slant rather than the current trend of blood and guts. Now, if that don't get you drooling, you better check for a pulse. Oh my god. So many sleazy 90s guys there. Yeah, and there is test footage online that does not deliver on what they seem to be promising here. It's pretty bad. Like, And I, obviously it's an incomplete game, so that makes sense, but it would not have been impressive if it came out in that form. Uh, last thing I'll just say here, though, as a Gen 13 reader, the thing that's disappointing to me is it was going beyond just saying, oh, it's a side-scrolling game, because it says here, quote, calling Gen 13 a side-scrolling game would be selling short what the animators are trying to accomplish. The storyline of the game involves an untold tale that will run concurrently with the Gen 13 comic book in 1997. So it says plans are underway for a cross debut of some new villains as well. And a full collaboration with Jim Lee on the designing of the new bosses is just one of the more cool aspects of the game. So it's one of those things like it was a fully integrated thing. I kind of want to go check the Gen 13 letters section now and see if they were dropping any hints about what that story would be. Because now I feel like I missed out on something. That's a bummer. Well, that's the end of the Jim and Todd news, so that brings us to our final tally here, Michael. With all the Heroes Reborn, Mishigash, and this issue, you better believe that Jim was ahead of Todd. He comes out actually more than double. Jim Lee mentioned 15 times in this issue, Todd McFarlane just seven, bringing our running total to Jim Lee 351, Todd McFarlane 360. And man, there's so much more to come. I gotta believe that Jim is closing that gap soon. It's gotta be soon he even gets his own special issue Hmm, interesting so are you gonna stop when we like hit a thousand or are you just gonna keep going all the way well you know the one innovation i have been considering is what if we put jimmy palmiotti and joe casada in the mix because they too are mentioned all the time so it feels like it might be a fun competition what's gonna happen is you're gonna go back 61 issues now and recount all of those as well (laughs) it would have to be for your own sanity and for your wife's sanity i can't let you do that (laughs) 
as your friend. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for talking me down. <laughs> but let's say we close this thing out here. We're going to close out with Turok's Top 10. Tonight's top 10, the top 10 ways to tell the difference between the crow and a mime. I have not looked at the site unseen. Number 10, if it's beating someone up, it's the crow. If someone's beating it up, it's a mime. <laughs> uh, number nine, people want to give mimes the bird. The crow already has one. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. Number eight, poke it in the eye with a stick. If it says, ouch, it's the crow. Hey, that checks out. Mimes can't talk. They gotta follow the code of the mime. <laughs> <laughs> code of the mime. Hey, look it up. All right, uh, number seven, mimes are French, and the crow never gives up. Ooh, wow. Oh, hey, now. Number six, to become a crow, you must experience great pain and suffering. To watch a mime, you will experience great pain and suffering. <laughs> number five, no one thinks it's cool when mimes come back from the dead. Ooh. Doesn't it feel like that? there's got to be like a mime zombie movie? I don't know. You'd know better than me. Mime apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> number four, mimes can't stand up to multiple gunshot wounds. We've tried. <laughs> oh, wizard, you homicidal scamps. Number three, only some people can accept the crow's need to kill his tormentors. Everyone understands the need to kill mimes. <laughs> That's dark. Now, we seem to be circling a lot of the same themes here, just inflicting, uh, maiming, torture, death upon the mime population. Yes. Number two, the crow kills bad people. All a mime kills is a good day in New York City. <laughs> I mean, only you can validate that one. All right, but here we are with the number one top ten ways to tell the difference between the crow and a mime. If Brandon Lee had played a mime, he'd be alive today, and it'd be his career that needed reviving. Aww. I'm so glad you had that one and not me, because that is dark. Oof. You almost made it, wizard. You almost made it without playing the bad taste card. Yeah, I would say the other nine of them were very funny and not as dark and offensive as that one was. That's a, oof, that's a low blow right there. But that's how the Turok's top ten goes sometimes. It always ends on some sort of weird, uncomfortable note. It's the Russian roulette of comic space journalism comedy. It's very specific. <laughs> <laughs> but that does it for this edition of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and joining in the fun and groans. Uh, but, Michael, why don't you tell them where they can find us? So they can check us out on iTunes, on Podbean. They can check us out on many different podcasting 
podcasting platform. They can go to wizardscomics.com and check out a bunch of our back episodes. Follow us on social media at wizardscomics on Twitter, at wizards underscore comics on Instagram. You know, hit us up and we'll chat with you and, you know, give us some feedback. And also, if you can, give us a five star review and let us know what you think of the show. You know, we really appreciate it and we love to hear from everybody. And don't forget to always check out the other retro network shows and card things that you guys do on YouTube and whatever else. The What was it called? Like Wax Paper or Wax? What? I believe the words you're searching for are Wax Pack Flashback. <laughs> That's what it's called, yes. But, um, but listen, you know, as always, we love hearing from everybody. We love, you know, doing this show. And we want to create more content for you guys. Let us know what you think, what we could add to the show, you know, what you like, and we'll try to add it in. Absolutely. We're doing it for you and a little bit for us. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. <laughs>